You are listening to Digfin Vox. Digfin is an online media group covering the digital transformation of financial services. Our podcast comes to you twice a month from our base in Hong Kong, Asia's leading financial center, where East meets West and developed markets meet the emerging consumer. Go to our website, www.ditchfingroup.com, so you don't miss out on our in-depth daily stories on how your clients and competitors are changing their business models across asset management, banking, capital markets, and insurance. Your podcast host is James Lindsay, and this is the voice of tech innovation and finance. This is Ditchfing Fox. Hello and welcome back to Digfin Vox. It's an absolute pleasure to be joined today by Chris Ryan to talk about the characteristics of success within the fintech market. How are you today, Chris? I'm doing very well, thanks. Brilliant, brilliant. Chris has built and managed a variety of Asia-Pacific institutional businesses in both data and asset management. He's run MSCI, Fidelity, ING Investment Management, and HSBC Asset Management across the region. He's also served as the CEO at Perpetual in Australia, advised Cities Custody Arm, sits on the board of AXA, Greater China, and is the co-founder of Digfin Group, so a fairly established CV. As such, I don't believe there's anybody more qualified to talk on the subject. Uh, thanks, James. It's, uh, it's only when you say things like that, I realise how old I am, but uh, <laughs> there you go. Yeah, so you, you actually attended the annual CFA conference this week. What was the vibe there? Well, there's actually quite a lot uh, about uh, fintech and about AI. I think in some, some senses, the, uh, the audience were a little concerned by some of the more challenging presentations, looking at how AI is likely to take over a lot of uh, at least the basic analytics that yeah. a lot of the members would have uh, been involved in over the years. Of, of the content, was it becoming more and more fintechy? Yeah, I think I think it is. You as, know, as of last year, yeah. I mean, compared to uh, compared to last year and the year before, uh, there was a lot more. There was a lot of discussion of uh, blockchain, how blockchain, not just in a cryptocurrency sense, but in a but in a workflow sense, is going to uh, to help, and that together with AI is going to challenge the norms of uh, traditional active asset management. Mm. So fin- fintech is not really a new thing. It's been around since the 90s when exchanges digitized and ATMs were rolled out and, and other things like that. But um, it's now become quite the buzzword. It's attracting huge sums of investment across the world. Uh, and it's a sector which is filled with lots and lots of participants competing for success. Firms are failing or succeeding much faster than they were ever before. Is this akin to the dot-com boom and bust. Yeah, I mean, I think there are a lot of similarities and I, I'm not sure that everyone in the fintech world appreciates how similar uh, the environment is. I mean, really, uh, the amount of money required to develop, uh, you know, an, a, a technical innovation in finance is substantial and, and investor expectations and uh, are very high. So, you know, what you've got to do is is find a way to succeed or fail fast. If you fail, it gives you a chance to get on with the next thing. Uh, but certainly, you know, with the, the amount of money that it costs to keep these things running, uh, sort of a 10-year a plan for success is not really realistic. And it wasn't in the dot-com boom either. Mm, I understand. So what, what really are the stages of development for a firm? I mean, you raise the seed capital, you create an MVP, then... 
VIP inventor turns into a business person somehow? How, how does it really happen? Yeah, well, I mean, there, in the dot-com world, if you look at, uh, you know, Facebook and Amazon and Google, for example, uh, there are exceptions to uh, the rule uh, that I'm about to talk about. But, but generally, the, uh, the inventor of the intellectual property is not, uh, not often the right person to take it forward as a business. So there comes a point in the in the early life cycle of a fintech innovation, when the when the developer of the IP, when the entrepreneur needs to start thinking about, okay, so I've got a lot of people interested in this, and I may even have some trials going. I may even have some paid trials, and I'm getting very good feedback. But how do I actually turn this into a business? How do I, you know, the term is monetization, which is only just part of it. You know, it's about your brand building and your presence in the market and understanding where your competitors are at and maybe uh, cooperating with some of them or, or cooperating with people who are in adjacent spaces. But uh, I don't see many people actually doing that. I see most people trying to develop these ideas on their own, uh, just raising their own pool of capital without uh, harvesting the other activity that's going on in the same marketplace. Okay. So what would be the, the main characteristics for success? I think, look, the, the first thing is, is the problem that you're trying to solve with the innovation big enough to warrant the expense of integrating that with, say, an institution's existing systems? Are there any penalties that that institution might have, uh, you know, that, that might need to be considered as a cost of taking on that innovation? Are there sort of sufficient resources within the within the, uh, the institution or, or, or indeed in, in the platform that you're trying to build uh, to be able to handle the, both the number of customers but also yeah. the, the f- future development. I mean, how, how important is the, the marketing side? Well, so is, that, is that what it all comes down to really? It's not what it all comes down to but it's incredibly important. I mean, uh, just like anything else, uh, uh, people do take time to get used to new concepts and they need to be clearly explained in terms of, as I mentioned before, the, the problem that you're trying to solve uh, and needs to show some understanding of, of how, uh, you know, how the innovation is actually going to solve that problem. It's not just enough to have a good idea and a, an idea that might be intellectually attractive. It actually has to solve a real-life problem yeah. and, and you know, either take a step out of the process or substantially reduce the cost of achieving something. Okay. And how important is, I would say, good governance? Well, governance, when we see, you know, in this business, we, we see a lot of uh, fintech companies. We see a lot of incredibly bright entrepreneurs with, with uh, great domain experience, generally. They're, you know, they've, they, if they're working in payments, they've come out of payments. Or if they've, they're working in, uh, say, equity analytics, they've come out of that field. But but what we don't see is people who actually have run a business before. And if you look at, at some of those dot-com entrepreneurs that succeeded, they had a knack of surrounding themselves with tried and tested you know, business managers and, and, mm. and people who were used to managing client relationships and managing the marketing budget and those kinds of things. So I, I think you can't start thinking about those things too early. You need to start surrounding yourself with people that can not only advise you on the domain and the IP itself, but actually how to run a business. And they may not come from your domain. Okay, sure. So let's talk about the payments market. 
So this is particularly saturated with a lot of entrants. Yeah. Um, how can new firms challenge incumbents when they're up against major firms with established networks and potentially decades-old contracts? Yeah, so, I mean, one of the things about payments is, obviously, it's an obvious problem to solve uh, for, you know, for banks uh, who are struggling with, uh, you know, coping with the sort of you know, data security and internet banking development and actually selling products across the internet. But uh, at the same time, you know, as payments is a very crowded space, they're uh, not just new entrants, but, you know, there's a lot of different approaches to solving the same problem. And that's going to take time for the institutions to work out which way they want to go. So <clears throat> I suspect that what will happen is that there'll be a lot of, uh, you know, trial and experimentation before uh, a dominant methodology for solving sort of peer-to-peer -peer payments mm -hmm. uh, and, and uh, you know, those kinds of things emerges. But the point that you raise about decade-old contracts is a very good one because credit card companies have been signing contracts with banks and, and other financial institutions, you know, since the 60s. And those contracts often include penalties for bypassing uh, those credit card companies, uh, you know, in their payment systems. Many, many of the innovative payments engines that you're seeing out there now, I mean, the payment still actually goes through a credit card company. It's just a mm. better front end. So yeah. uh, the banks need to consider the cost of moving away from a credit card processing platform for those, those payments. The entrepreneurs, uh, you know, mm. perhaps need to have a two-step approach to getting their, you know, their true peer-to-peer -peer payment process uh, uh, working inside an institution. Uh, and they need to consider the costs uh, that that they're, they're asking the institution to take on. There's also, I guess, within this space, quite the regulatory element. So it's not, you know, the, a lot of these um, bits of software, they're, they're intended as B2B, but they do affect the end customer, so they're B2B yeah. to C. Yeah, so, I mean, that is, you know, one question we always ask when we, when we look at these things is, uh, will it travel? You know, so you see payments uh, systems that, in fact, you know they work well in one environment, like uh, like in China or in or in uh, in Germany, for example, which have laws that are quite different to to uh, perhaps the you know U.S. and and Canada and Australia, for example. But nevertheless, um, you know the regulations. Even though you might be providing software to an institution, you need to consider the regulatory aspects of that and traceability and taxation. I mean, it's one of the big problems with uh, uh, you know, the cryptocurrency world at the moment from a regulatory point of view. Mm -hmm. you know, the day that cryptocurrencies can be tracked and taxed uh, you know, as, as normal payments can be, uh, then you know, we'll be a lot closer to the universal adoption of cryptocurrency as a mainstream uh, financial instrument. But we're not there yet, yep. and it's going to Long take way some time. Off that. Yeah, sure. So onto B2B uh, intellectual property, what, um, what about, you know, how, how do you succeed here? How, how do you interact with dealing desks? Yeah, well, it's a good example because over the last 10 years in particular, uh, you know, fund managers and brokers, sell side and buy side, have 
you know, they've surrounded the dealing desk with uh, this uh, envelope of compliance and risk management tools. Those, yeah. those, so anything that comes inside that, anything that comes inside that, that envelope needs to comply. Uh, irrespective of how good the opportunity might be to access a new asset class or to, to uh, you know, to, to take a step out of the process. Uh, sometimes that it takes time to convince the compliance people that that's what happens. I mean, we see this all the time where, where somebody has some great B2B uh, you know, software that improves yeah. the quality of dealing or you know, they've got a different platform or process. But, and and the, the people on the dealing desk like it, the, you know, the, the business people like it, it stacks up from a financial point of view initially. But when it gets to risk management and compliance, it just, you know, it stalls yeah. because they're not familiar with it. It has elements in it that, uh, uh, you know, th that they find difficult to, to deal with from a compliance and risk management point of view. And so you end up with the whole project stalling. Okay. You need to consider that and, and figure out a way right up front of dealing with that compliance hurdle, that compliance hurdle rather, uh, you know, in the adoption phase. Okay, so there's a big impact on the compliance environment. Which I guess kind of leads into my, my next question, which was more about kind of regulation. So what are the implications of, of regulation on the market? Um, it'd be good to get your take on things or, such as MIFID 2, RegTech, compliance and data security. We'll start with the first one soon. So yeah, MIFID so 2. MIFID 2, of course, is uh, applicable to those people, you know, largely doing business in Europe. But, you know, it will slowly creep around the world as if you look in the insurance world as solvency too has yeah. affected the way that people manage insurance portfolios even well outside and here in Hong Kong for example uh, the, uh, the life insurance regulator here is introducing uh, uh, very similar conditions to solvency too for for life insurance companies but mm -hmm. MIFID too uh, you know, that means that you've got to keep track of the research that you're getting. You've got to yeah. keep track of the, keep track of the, uh, uh, the way that it's used, the value, the, you know, how that's costed, how, who pays for that. And if you're going to charge it back to the funds, uh, you know, you've got to have the data to support that because somewhere along the line, somebody's going to challenge that with a regulator, an yeah. institutional client, even though the regulations are not designed for institutional clients, but if they're investing in a fund which has both uh, retail and institutional investors in it, you know, you're going to get challenged at some point in time. And the, tech, the existing technology is not good enough yeah. uh, to keep up with that. There's some very interesting, uh, you know, reg tech, MIFID compliance uh, platforms out there. And, you know, we're quite close to a couple of those. And I think they're actually, they're actually you know, they deserve uh, a sort of faster adoption. So do, do these new rules, not just MIFID 2, but elsewhere across the world, they're, they're creating lots of opportunities for reg tech firms? Absolutely. I think reg tech is probably, you know, it's the, it's the closest to a slam dunk you've got in tech and, and in that uh, it, it's becoming a major cost center for organizations. And it, you know, frankly, 
in the short term, it doesn't really help you sell one extra dollar of a, of a fund or of a strategy. So no, it's not about the distribution. It's about lowering costs and increase, yeah, improving. Yeah, right. yeah. yeah, yeah. So, and, you know, and, and I think if you start at that end, uh, then yeah, the, the compliance and risk management people get used to this kind of innovation and are probably more likely to accept it when it comes in other parts of the organization too. Sure. And what, what's your take on, um, on data security? Well, data security is an interesting thing because, you know, at the CFA conference earlier this week, there was a lot of discussion of a lot of presentations on AI and similar technologies and, and blockchain. In some ways, the advent of AI, blockchain, and eventually quantum computing uh, will help to increase security, but it will challenge the current forms of data security that we assume is going to protect us. So we've seen recently what happens when, you know, to, to Facebook and others, when data security is effectively breached. And, you know, where there's been cases in the US and Europe too. And it has made Europe bring in to force new data security regulations. Now, they're a bit cumbersome and, and the public doesn't really understand them. But over time, these things are going to dominate our thinking about, you know, what data do we have? How do we keep it? Uh, yeah, it's quite the hot topic. <laughs> it is, you know, it's everywhere. Yeah. It's everywhere right now. So, but I think, you know, the best thing you can be doing is preparing for that by looking at some of these, uh, you know, large data field analytics fintech companies that are that are uh, helping large companies get ready for an environment where AI and eventually quantum computing are going to be uh, not just used mm. by the white hats but by the black hats. So. Okay, so yeah, going on to the quantum computing part, so what is the, the future of, um, you know, of, of fintech? We've got quantum computing, artificial intelligence, big data, blockchain, cryptocurrencies. Is this going to be hugely disruptive? Yeah, you've just, you've just said a sentence that didn't exist five years ago, but... Yeah, that's but true. The, <laughs> the, but the thing is that, uh, you know, these things, so to take... I won't take them all one at a time, but looking at quantum computing, that's still quite a way out. Nevertheless, um, I'm old enough to remember when we moved from, you know, punch cards to uh, to to mainframe terminals, and then from mainframe terminals to uh, sort of desk desktop backbones, and from desktop backbones to laptops, and from laptops to to phones. Now that the, each of those transitions, there are lots of people skeptical about, you know, whether yeah. this would either change things or improve things. But in each case, it dramatically improved things and it dramatically changed the way that you work. You know, when I first started work, uh, everything was still done with paper. If you wanted to communicate with someone else in the office, you wrote them an email, somebody came and picked it up off your desk and took it over to their, to their desk. Yeah. We didn't have email in those days. I was making myself sound very old here, but, but nevertheless, I'm sure many listeners will remember that. Now, with quantum computing, Quantum computing is going to be a little bit less obvious because it's going to sit behind conventional computing. It's going to be, you know, part of the problem will be solved with conventional computing and quantum computing uh, will be in the background. You know, it, quantum computers basically, you know, uh, they, they will help us solve extremely complex problems. It's not about necessarily about speed for the everyday problems. We already have the computing power to do that. But... Uh, you know, if you wanted to get a macro view of, you know, uh, all trading uh, in a market over 
uh, uh, say, 10 years, if that's for whatever reason you were looking at that, it's going to be much easier to do that sort of thing uh, using quantum computing. The, the regular computing will do as much as it can, and then it'll push through the bit that it can't do uh, to the quantum computer. Right now, I mean, there are, there are different architectures and different hardwares for quantum computing. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the most common one right now is based on superconductors. Now, those superconductors only work when they're operating at very close to absolute zero. Uh, and what that means is that 95% of a quantum computer based on the superconductor is you know, refrigeration and air conditioning. But there are other technologies, and I, and I think that when you look at quantum computing, it, it will be the future, and big organisations need to get themselves ready for that environment because uh, for two reasons. Firstly, uh, they're going to be competing against people who are going to be using that technology, number one. Second thing is that all of the data that they've got, it's currently a massive and growing expense base for them, can be much easier uh, managed and manipulated using the tools that will be available once quantum computing is here. You know, looking at AI, for example, at the CFA conference uh, the other day, uh, I think there was a lot of trepidation about the impact that AI might have on jobs in the industry. I have no doubt that that will be the case. I think a lot of the things that we've, been, you know, we've, in terms of analysing, uh, uh, you know, trends and whatever. Typically, if a stock analyst has an idea, you know, the, the, the fund manager will say, OK, bring that, to the, uh, bring that to the meeting next week. Well, by the time next week rolls around, uh, that trade yeah, is going to be, it's yeah. gonna be six and a half days old. So uh, it's going to be gone. So I think AI is going to be probably the biggest impact of all of these things in the very near term. Blockchain Blockchain's probably like next. Uh, blockchain and crypto probably, you know, uh, crypto will follow the more uh, universal adoption of blockchain and then follow... Uh, uh, Ultimately by quantum computing. Quantum computing. Yeah, that's probably eight to ten years away, but believe me, that goes quickly. Uh, you know, <laughs> that's just that's less than one market cycle these days. Sure, sure. So just to conclude, what words of advice would you give to somebody trying to break through into the world of fintech. Yeah, so you can't see yourself just in your own domain, in your own bubble. You have to understand what's around you. You have to understand where there are cooperation opportunities, where there are challenges to the people that you want to adopt your technology and how you can help them solve those. You know, you need to be thinking about those things early. You need to be thinking about the positioning of your, your company, your idea as a brand. and. You know, generally those companies, even if they've had the same technology as another, those companies that spend more time thinking about their brand and, and figuring out a way to position that do better than those that don't. The, th you know, the next thing is think early about your governance. How do you turn this great idea into a business? You know, assuming that you're solving a problem that people are willing to pay for, and that is, that's quite a big assumption in some cases, um, you know, how do you get someone to take care of the, you know, the finance and the, and the operational aspects of the business, the marketing, you're managing a sales team and all those kinds of things. So I, there's a lot to think about. Um, it's not always easy to find the information, but 
fortunately here at Digfin, uh, if you look at our articles each day, you'll get a, a clue as to how the you know the better people are doing. That's a fantastic plug. Uh, <laughs> no problem. <laughs> yeah, good words of wisdom as well. Thank you, Chris, for coming in. Thanks, James. No problem. Cheers. Bye. Yeah, 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 yeah.